special edition of the Kirkmont Men's Podcast. This edition is special because I am here with John Harris. How you doing, brother? Doing well. Thanks, BJ. So, gentlemen, John Harris is not only a published author, but he is also the host of the podcast called Conversations That Matter. He has graduated from seminary at Southeastern Seminary. He has an MA in history from Liberty University, and he has what I think is one of the most well-researched and most prolific podcasts that I've ever listened to. Brother, how do you have time to get all this content out, man? Well, you're very kind. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I uh, just, I, I have actually a PowerPoint now opened up. I kind of developed a system over time uh, where, um, and this probably was in the last six months, where I'll just kind of put things as they come to me. I might take a screenshot on my phone or I might um, see something on the computer and I'll import it into a PowerPoint and uh, some stuff just sits there forever and I never get to it. Other stuff uh, I'll talk about, but uh, that, that way, um, as I'm just going through life and I'm looking at stuff and people are sending me stuff, uh, I have just a lot of information. So that's one of the ways I guess I sort of develop time. Um, other than that, I don't know. I mean, um, I am writing a book right now and some of the content from the book overlaps a lot with some of the things we're seeing in politics and church life. So I will um, sometimes use some of some of those things because I've already been thinking about them. But yeah, um, my wife doesn't think I'll be able to probably keep it up for a whole lot longer without uh, <laughs> crashing <laughs> somewhere. So I might I might scale it back a little bit. Right now, there's just it, it, the the fight is so hot though. I feel like I need to try to, without going insane, put out as much content as I possibly can. So. Well, I can say firsthand that the content that you're putting out is extraordinarily helpful for for guys like myself. Um, Gentlemen, if you take the time to listen to his, his material that he's putting out, it is a very interesting combination of um, historical perspective and research about how things have been done in the past. Obviously, he is trained in, uh, in, as a historian, but also um, you, you manage to keep up with the, the, the up-to-date workings of things as, as they are sort of unfolding. And I think that connection of historical perspective playing out in day-to-day life is probably where it's been most helpful for me. And gentlemen, gentlemen, I I hope that you find it to be very helpful to you as well. Because the reason that I asked John to come on here is to talk about his book called Social Justice Goes to Church. Now, for some of you, social justice is a topic that you know all about, you're fired up about, you have watched it unfold most acutely since the the George Floyd, um, you know, the, the whole unfolding of that event. Um, but for others of you, it's a word that you've heard vaguely in the background and you, you kind of have this nebulous idea of what's going on. And our, our hope today is to put what's happening today into that historical context. And John is the, the best guy for the job. So, John, would you, would you start out with this for us, man? You are talking about how social justice has creeped its way into the church. What exactly do you mean? Just sort of a thumbnail sketch of what you mean by social justice. Yeah. So when I talk about social justice, um, I'm generally 
going back to a redistributive type of justice that I find, I think, most identifiable at an earliest date in uh, the teachings and writings of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who was a French, um, he was a French philosopher that a lot, a lot of people credit with motivating the French Revolution. And there are three key elements that I've identified in his writing that seem to carry through um, Marxism and, and all the other iterations of that uh, that we've had throughout the years. And so he said that, um, well, one of the goals was achieving an egalitarian ideal. So equality, equity is the term used today, but some kind of, um, some kind of flatlined equality of some kind where everyone um, is living in a harmonious world and no one has more than someone else. Um, and then dismantling social institutions which prevent its achievement. So the reason that there's no egalitarian equality is because uh, there's these social institutions that are keeping it from happening because they have hierarchies. And so getting rid of those institutions or um, somehow uh, deconstructing them and reforming them is kind of the, the second part. And then the third part would be implement uh, an implementation of a force capable of executing that utopian dream. So you can't just get rid of all these institutions keeping equality from happening without some kind of uh, force somewhere. And it could be a central authority like a government. That's most often how it's been, um, I think, uh, carried out in Marxist regimes. But uh, uh, within the church right now, it, it could even... On a, on a mini scale, it could even be like an elder board or something that's possible that you could have just that sort of top down um, pressure. So that's basically what I mean. I have a lot of reasons for it. I'm writing a book now where I go through in the first chapter, the history of the social justice movement. And um, there are those who try to recapture social justice. I know Heritage Foundation did that about 10, 15 years ago, where they're trying to point to uh, Roman Catholic sources that had used this term, especially in the mid 1800s. And um, what I determined when I was looking at those sources and even the writings of John Rawls was that these were just kind of anomalies. These were not, this is not the kind of social justice that's been carried through from the French, French Revolution till today. And um, when the Catholics used it in the 1800s, they meant something totally different than uh, its meaning really from the social gospel forward. And that's really where the term itself was coined was in that social gospel era. And Ra Rauschenbusch really popularized it. And really what it was, was a Fabian socialism um, uh, repackaged and then marketed to Americans. And because Americans were so religious and Fabian socialism was so secular, Americans wouldn't buy into it unless they could somehow um, think of it in religious terms. And, and Marx himself did not like justice. That term really, he, he thought justice was kind of more of a religious term. And it, and it kind of is. I mean, you kind of have to have some kind of a standard. So um the uh, the social justice uh, movement took the term social justice and then just pushed Fabian socialism under that name. And that's really where we get the term today. So that's how I trace it back. I trace it to Fabian socialism, um, social gospel, and then before that, redistributive justice going back to Rousseau. Very nice. Yeah. All right. So you, you connected this, this idea of social justice with socialism. You mentioned Marx a time or two, but oftentimes I think if you talk to the average person and you mention the word social justice, they almost immediately go to the idea of race or some of the racial, sort of racial tensions that you see kind of being popularized in the media. So where, where's the disconnect here? How does social justice connect with race, but also with socialism and Marxism? So yeah, between um, the social gospel era at the turn of the century and early 1900s, and then um, 
today, the critical theories, uh, you had um, some other movements uh, that came about. One was um, French postmodern uh, thinkers, a French postmodern school, people like Rousseau and Derrida. Um, the other was a uh, cultural Marxist school. Uh, we mostly identify that with the Frankfurt School in Germany, uh, but it, it actually kind of predates that. You could go back to uh, the Italian Marxist Gramsci and some of his writings called the Prison Letters. And um, Gramsci identified a weakness in Marx's um, uh, his ideas because Marx wanted the revolution to come and it was inevitable it was going to come. But the problem is it, it just never came. And Gramsci said, well, the reason for that is because it's not just an economic thing. It's not just uh, a class thing. It's actually ingrained in um, culture. And he, he used the term hegemony is this um, kind of oppressive, uh, um, oppressive assumption. So people are being oppressed uh, and they, in, by conforming to the social standards that exist in whatever society they live in. And that's how the elites maintain their control. And so it was along the, the lines of cultural factors, not um, solely economic factors. And then that was expanded upon in the Frankfurt School. And, and in the Frankfurt School is really where you start to see, I think, race, uh, especially having a bigger um, uh, race and, and other things, actually gender as well, kind of having a more of a, a center focus. Uh, and then you get to the critical theories um, and, and the identity politics uh, that came before them. And, uh, and they're totally operating based off of uh, racial differences, uh, gender differences, now sexual orientation. And it really has expanded to so many things. I mean, being uh, overweight is an identity now uh, that, that's oppressed. Being disabled uh, is an oppressed identity. And so, um, so it's, it's been an evolution throughout time to get to the point that we're at today. But if you think about it, like... Um, <laughs> So, like a fly trying to get into your window kind of right and it can't get in uh unless it, it finds like a little hole an opening that's kind of been what what's happened in america is marxism could just never take root until uh it found that hole and um and using some of the weaknesses that exist in america some of the strains that were already kind of there uh they were able to capitalize on that pick at that um uh, open that wound up and, uh, and then put a knife in it and make it worse. And that's kind of what we're seeing today. So now I think this is where uh, one of the words that those who have, uh, have actually studied this would come in. The idea of intersectionality, you mentioned all sorts of different oppressor, oppressed classes or identities. So where does the idea of intersectionality come into this? Intersectionality uh, is I think of it as a um, kind of a ramped up version of identity politics. It, it saw the weakness in identity politics and then decided to create a, a glue that kind of made identity politics stick together and, and consistently work towards the goal of defeating a common enemy. So um, most people go back to mapping the margins by Kimberly uh, Williams, which uh, I think that was 19... 91, 19, I think it's 1991 when she published that. And that's kind of the foundation uh, of intersectionality. But the basic idea is that there's um, intersection, inter, inter, intersecting social locations that uh, can contribute to one another in, in such a way that someone can have multiple identities that, that um, confer upon them a unique oppressed status. So someone who is... Um, disabled and also a an ethnic minority 
may have a um, greater intersectional score, uh, more, they're more oppressed than someone who's simply just uh, a minority or someone who's simply just disabled. And so um, this, the idea was that these people have unique needs, political needs, and they need political representation. That's where identity politics comes in. They have unique insights. Um, the glue that kind of makes uh, them stick together is that um, they, th there's, there's kind of a goal because critical race theory, um, the only goal of critical race theory is deconstruction. It, it destroys things. It wipes out hierarchies. It tries to critically... Uh, show that certain things that you never thought were racist really are and need to be destroyed. Intersectionality, though, has the goal of actually reconstructing, reconfiguring society based on uh, this principle. So um, platforming people who are in these intersectional categories of being oppressed, uh, making sure that your libraries are diverse, um, making sure that certain symbols uh, and uh, offensive, it could even be artwork or, you know, whatever uh, elements of culture that are deemed um, intolerant are extinguished. And, and that way create the new society, the utopian that ultimately, if you just trace it back, this is the equality that Rousseau thought of much differently, but it's, it's made its way uh, to today. And uh, we think of it in this sort of triad of um, equity, inclusion, and diversity. And so intersectionality tries to achieve th those three things, uh, supposedly. And, um, and of course, Christianity uh, is uh, against that, is one of the, the hierarchies that needs to be deconstructed, but so does you know, the military and so does your, your, um, your school and even you know, your, your knitting group or you know, all these different um, structures in society are, they need to be deconstructed and then rebuilt along these intersectional lines. Very nice. Okay. Yeah. So you, you mentioned the, the church and Christianity needing to be deconstructed. We'll, we'll get there in a second. Um, one institution you didn't mention that I think probably is central to this discussion is the institution of a family. It, it, has social justice had its eye on the family from the beginning, or is this something that has come about lately or I guess the reason I'm asking the question is for the average guy who is trying to understand how to live their day-to-day -day life in a world where social justice reigns supreme in the minds of the elites, what does that have to do with their personal life in terms of family? Well, I think, um, so two things. One is uh, culture is, is an outworking of family. So everything I was talking about in culture, um, I, I think if you understand culture, even from a, a biblical perspective, but just sort of an organic, natural perspective of the way culture works, uh, it's people having children and they usually stick around a certain area and they develop habits and traditions and these kinds of things. And so it's within those habits and traditions that the cultural Marxists and today's critical theorists think are, is all this oppression that's been uh, conferred through law and, and just really everything. And so, um, so that does, that is an extension of the family. Now the, the family unit itself, that nuclear family, Marx did think that, um, marriage even itself was kind of a luxury of the upper class. And, um, that, uh, this is even how in Europe, uh, the, um, Kings and, and Queens and the Dukes and the Lords, et cetera, all kind of maintained, uh, the, their inheritance. Uh, so what would be the, the wealth that would be passed down from generation to generation, uh, this was their way of keeping it out of the hands of the people was through the institution of the family. 
so the, the family just touches so many different things, but um, this was Marx's sort of his critique from an economic standpoint. Today, uh, with the critical theorists and the way that they conceive of the oppression being um, uh, applied in a cultural context more, they look at family and traditions uh, within a family as uh, just like the broader culture, uh, also containing some kind of oppression of some kind. Um, and so uh, things that, I mean, I remember um, one of the professors at South, uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, who's very affected by critical theory, had, had said that what he did in his job at teaching at, at Southern was to peel back the veil to show the students that what they thought was this faithful, orthodox tradition, perhaps in their denomination or in their family, and I think he even said the word family, was really just the rotting corpse of white supremacy. So what that does when you start, um, you start attacking uh, national identity, family identity, uh, denominational identity, all these different identities that people have is you, you destroy their identity so that they don't really know who they are. And this has been a common tactic of Marxists throughout time is to try to rewrite history, to try to make people ashamed of who they are, what their ancestors did, these kinds of things. And it makes them more docile and controllable uh, if they're guilty. And if they're guilty, they, they want to get rid of the guilt somehow. They want to somehow um, amend this situation. And so that drives them right in the arms of the social justice movement, which says, well, you can address these things. You got to check your privilege. You got to uh, do reparations. Um, and really, they fall into the arms of an alternative religion that is trying to get rid of this guilt that they have because uh, of their family background or whatever other identity. So it's an attack on identity. The family is the most basic thing that confers identity. Uh, that may, that's the glue that makes society actually even work itself is that everyone has a common, um, a, a, a common stewardship for their people and for their, their land, their stuff. Um, if you can destroy that, uh, then it opens the gate for centralization because people are no longer relying on their families to take care of you know, the elderly or uh, to help in financial situations or any of that stuff. Now they have to look to the government or some central authority to step in and do the job that family is supposed to do. So it's a big threat. It's multifaceted and multilayered, but uh, ultimately I think the goal is to destroy the family. And one of the other ways you can see it is there. Uh, acceptance of so many sexual, um, they call them sexual minorities, but sexual uh, deviations and, and how that fits into the social justice movement, which I, I think that's the next wave we're going to see. And I, I think we'll see it pretty quick. We'll have um, maybe some kind of a George Floyd moment. I'm not sure what it'll look like, but there'll be something that pushes the envelope uh, on the LGBTQ stuff. And, and it'll be just like we saw last year uh, in, in many, it, not the same in all respects, but similar to what we saw last year with Black Lives Matter. So um, that's, that's the next step. And I think it will be more aggressively anti-family when it reaches that level. Gotcha. Wow. So I think, gentlemen, the first thing I would want to say in, in response to some of that is when we start hearing a lot of the talk of social justice and some of the language that goes on around it, we almost naturally begin to think that this is all new. This is all like new ideas. And if, if John has taught you anything so far, it's that these ideas did not simply pop up out of nowhere. This, it wasn't as if they woke up one day and said, hey, let's try this. These are ideas that have been fostering and budding in sort of nascent form for many, many years. And I think that's probably one of the most valuable portions of the book, Social Justice Goes to Church, 
is that if you were paying attention in the 70s, it should not shock you that it popped up in evangelicalism, which we will get to in just a moment. John, let me let me play devil's advocate here for just a minute. Please do. You know, you you <clears throat> you mentioned you know oppression. A lot of times when we think about social justice, where we we think about the idea of racism, when we get into the gender wars, so to speak, you want to think about things like abuse, and the it's a natural inclination for Christians to say, well, listen, I don't I don't know about all that you know Rousseau stuff. I'm not sure about all of this Marx stuff. I generally don't like the idea of socialism, but shouldn't Christians care about the poor? Shouldn't we care about abuse? In other right. words, do, doesn't the Bible say an awful lot about justice? Shouldn't this be something that we care about? Maybe we don't see eye to eye with the social justice folks, but shouldn't this be something that we should be caring about as well? We should care about justice, uh, that's for sure. And it doesn't mean that the church is the instrument of justice. The church is an instrument of grace, Um we have the government is really supposed to be more the the magistrate is is who wields the sword and uh, promotes justice. But um, as individual Christians, yes, the justice uh, in society should be um, one of the things that we care deeply about because the law of God has a lot to say about it. But the justice that you find in the law of God is more of an equality before a, the law, not an egalitarian equality. And, and the difference is that, um, a good way to think about it is the statue of Lady Justice with her her eyes blindfolded. Lady Justice um, is not supposed to take into account external factors. And th- this is the same thing Exodus uh, essentially says, is that you shouldn't take into account whether that person's your family member or whether uh, they're a foreigner or whether, uh, and there's a whole long list of things um, that you're not supposed to be looking at, even whether they're poor, you know, your emotional heartstrings are just pulled. Uh, you should give, if someone, let's say, breaks the law, they should get justice, no matter who they are. That's equality before the law. Um, or if you owe to, you know, you should do something nice for them, you know, that you have a duty to stick up for them, you should do that no matter who they are. Uh, egalitarian equality looks at things like disparities uh, between groups, let's say um, a certain minority group and uh, a majority group. And they'll say, well, because this group doesn't have as much access to healthcare, care, something like that, then this is an injustice. And they'll identify that as such. And so Lady Justice takes the blindfold off and then looks at people um, according to their external factors or their social location, and then makes determinations on how society should be arranged based on those things. And that's a completely different way. It actually, uh, it really overturns the concept of equality before the law. And there's a lot more that probably can be said about all that, but, but the main point is that Christians should care about justice. It's just, just that the justice that they care about is not uh, the kind of um, justice that uh, I, I would say, actually, it's a perversion of justice uh, that the social justice crowd wants to promote. Okay, well, let me, uh, let me again play devil's advocate another step here. So, all right, John, you have convinced me that the, the social justice approach to justice is not the biblical approach to justice. And so maybe we don't swallow whole hog the, everything they say, but what, what would be the problem with taking some of the ideas and some of the observations that they have made about disparities and things or, or statistics about abuse and maybe just using it as a tool? Couldn't we sort of keep this in our back pocket and Maybe, uh, maybe just learn a little bit about circumstances that we may not otherwise be aware of and then bring in some biblical justice from there. What, what would be the problem with using it that way? 
Well, it's very similar to the debate in the 1980s about psychology and Christian counseling. Um, you know, can you use some of the research? Sure. I mean, you can certainly use it insofar as it um, rightly conveys data or something like that. And you can look at that data, but the way that you interpret that data and what you do about that data is going to be totally different than someone who's operating on assumptions that contradict Christianity. And so uh, this gets back to the debate in the SBC about using critical race theory and intersectionality as analytical tools. Um, it's very similar also to the debate, and it wasn't really much of a debate. It was just kind of, uh, I, I mean, maybe there was some debate, but in the 1970s uh, and really the 50s through the 70s, liberation theology, um, neo-Marxism, these kinds of things, uh, were also making their ways into not only evangelical circles, but even before that, Catholic circles. And that's where we get liberation theology. So the Marxism plus Christianity, the syncretism creates liberation theology. And some of that language that we're hearing today about critical race theory is the same language that was used back then to refer to Marxism, that Marxist, Marxism can be used as an analytical tool. Uh, and we can import the assumptions of Marxism without accepting the secular worldview that Marxism teaches. And that's really what I think is being said today. We can, um, we can think that racism is normative, that we need oppressed perspectives to solve racism uh, and to understand racism, um, that uh, we need to rewrite history. I mean, that goes back to the oppressed perspective, uh, according to, to modern social groups and what they think. It's called memory studies. Um, there, there's just there's a whole line of assumptions. They, they basically come back down to two things. Mainly, it's that standpoint epistemology, which is a fancy word. But it really what it means is um, that oppressed perspectives have a greater understanding of reality and insights into reality than other people uh, that are in the majority culture, quote unquote. And so it, it uniquely positions them to be able to address injustice and to solve those things. And then there's the um, Marxist metaphysic, which is um, a fancy way of saying that there's oppressed and oppressor categories and society breaks down into these power relations. And so it's an oversimplification and you assign these categories, these designations based on the social location someone lives in. So if they're white, they're automatically have an oppressed um, you know, label put on them, whether or not they, you know, they could have been born an orphan and you know, lived in a horrible uh, existence, but it doesn't matter as long as they have that white privilege. So, um, so those are the two basic elements of critical race theory. And so if you buy into those two things, uh, the tools that come out of that are going to be tools for understanding racism. So you're going to see racism on the McDonald's menu. You're going to see it everywhere. It's like walking into a room like you're a detective and, uh, you know, they have these blue, these strobe light things that are supposed to identify where blood is. But if you have a, a light that's not working properly and it just identifies blood all over the place, that's kind of like what we're seeing now with critical race theorists. They walk in and they just see racism everywhere. Uh, so you're going to misdiagnose, you're going to misidentify if you start out with the assumptions of critical race theory, that racism is just normative. Uh, the, there's, everything's a power relation. Um, and if, if that's the assumption you have, it's just going to, it's going to affect the tool and it's going to affect uh, the solution that ends up um, not being a real solution because it doesn't understand reality. And, and so that's the problem. That's the main problem with it. You can't detach the analytical tools from the um, uh, worldview itself that they rest on and those assumptions. Uh, some people will say that, um, you know, this is no different than using like the Pythagorean theorem or uh, Platonic thought or something like that. I mean, they were pagan. So can't we use their 
uh, writings or their materials. And, and the fact is you can use them, but the difference is that um, if they're operating under laws that are fundamental to reality, to natural revelation, like mathematical laws or logical laws, then uh, there really isn't much, there doesn't need to be much of a conflict. Now, obviously there's things that get into, you know, Plato's theories that are wrong and you can, you can figure those out. But, um, but if they're operating based on logic, based on things that are um, universal to all people that are uh, fundamental to reality, that are part of natural revelation, uh, that are just, you know, things that God has equipped us with, then you can certainly use those tools. That's why non-Christians can build airplanes and be chemists and, and make great art. But um, there, in critical race theory and Marxism, you're actually, it's not that you're using tools that are fundamental to reality. You're actually using tools that exist in the minds of sociologists that are detached from reality, that are in opposition, the assumptions behind them to Christianity. So I hope that makes sense, but that's the difference between uh, those two things. Well, and I, I agree with what you said that, you know, you can't use the tool because in order to use the tool, it sort of, um, it, it requires you to adopt the worldview behind it. And I think the key to what you just said is understanding um, the phrase you use, epist standpoint epistemology. Um, I, I know that Vody Balkum has referred to social justice as um, ethnic Gnosticism. And I, I think that, um, tell me if you would agree with this, John. There is a real parallel between the early Gnostic heresies and their pursuit of secret knowledge rather than revealed knowledge. And in comparison to what we see today with the social justice, where just because you have the wrong identity, you can't speak to certain issues or there are certain things you can't know. So do you, do you see that parallel yeah. as well? Absolutely. It's not just ethnic Gnosticism. It's, it's along, you know, a whole bunch of lines and they're growing every day. It's racial and gender and sexuality and all sorts of other identity factors now. So um, that's why I think there's a race to victimhood in our culture where people, instead of, it's kind of a curious thing, and maybe it spells the death of our society in some ways, but instead of um, relishing in achievement, people want to relish in victimhood. That's very bad and very unhealthy. And I think the reason for it is because of this assumption that it confers not only a sympathy, but some kind of uh, an advantage and the people you should be listened to because you have a gluten allergy or, you know, it, it's getting ridiculous with some people. They think that they have the right to, um, to, to give information and they have wisdom and so forth because of some oppression that they think they have or barrier that they experience. So it's, it is very much like an agnostic kind of thing. Uh, they have unique information that you don't have if you haven't experienced their malady and you must then sit at their feet and listen to understand uh, their experience and otherwise you have no right to talk about something. So free speech, um, th this will kick free speech to the side, but th this, will, um, th this will tear apart our society if we keep going in this direction because um, it, it will... Um, it, it will be a race to the bottom because <laughs> people want to be the priest. They want to be, you know, the one who uh, has the most knowledge. I mean, in general, people want that advantage. And if victimhood is what gives you an advantage and that's the incentive, uh, then there's, there's no reason to try anymore. There's no reason to uh, try to achieve something great. So yeah, I, I do see the parallels. I think it's a little different, but yeah, it's it certainly, um, I, I forget who it was. There was a, 
I want to say it was a Catholic Pope. I, I wanted to say John Paul might've said it, but that social justice is the um, combination of every other heresy, ancient heresy. And there are quite a few. I identified five that seem to parallel social justice. So, uh, so Gnosticism is one of them for sure. Well, and I, I do think that getting to the is- issue of epistemology, how we know what we know is really why we can't even get near this because it ultimately requires us to give up a revelational epistemology, a knowledge that we gain by God's revelation, either through scripture, you know, infallibly right. or through nature and through human conscience, you know, fallibly. So here's my next question. then, John, your, your book is about social justice, getting into the church. And I think you've made a very solid case for why this is a fundamentally different thing than Christianity. It's not a neutral thing. It's not a thing we can kind of toy with. How in the world did we get evangelicals, moderate, some even conservative evangelicals, wanting to play footsie with what seems like a very ungodly thing? It's, um, <laughs> there, there's a couple ways of answering that. Um, I think there's two motivations primarily. One's pragmatic. So this is what's going to help our institutions survive, what's going to come about in our culture, in our world. The second is um, an actual true belief in social justice, that this truly is what biblical justice is all about. This is, in most cases, this is what the gospel is about. And, and that came in, uh, the, sto- the story of that really starts in the late 50s, uh, early 60s. Um, you could even go back a little farther, but I think the 50s is mainly where a lot of the leaders of uh, a movement in the 1970s were, they were growing up, they were coming of age, they were starting to understand the world around them. People like Jim Wallace and Ron Sider, um, Tim Keller to some extent, uh, Wes Granberg, Michelson, Sharon Gallagher, list goes on and on, John Alexander. These are people that today, m- most of you probably haven't heard of a lot of them. Uh, Richard Mao's another one. Uh, but they have had a tremendous influence, especially Richard Mao, Ron Sider, um, and Jim Wallace, those three. Uh, John Perkins would be another one to some extent. But in, in, in just about every case of these young individuals in the 50s growing up, when they started going to high school or college, they had kind of a switch. They, they were raised in evangelical or conservative Anabaptist houses, you know, fundamentalist houses, that, you know, Christian, conservative Christian households. And they, they ended up getting um, impacted by Marxism, postmodernism, et cetera, in college or high school. And they had kind of an, an awakening experience. That's what Jim Wallace calls it. Today, we call it getting woke. But back then, they didn't have that. They just, it, I was awakened. Uh, like Jim Wallace says, you know, I never truly understood the gospel until I, you know, went to, uh, I think it was in um, high school, and he started realizing the racial disparities that existed around him and that kind of thing. So, um, so, so they get radicalized by the new left. And uh, which is coming out of the Frankfurt School. And then they end up coming back to the church, to the evangelicalism, or, or some of them like Wes Gramber Michelson went to the Dutch Reformed Church, but usually evangelicalism. And they brought with them those ideas. And the reason they came back was because they, it was empty. They had bought into all these political movements, but then they realized there's nothing at the end of the day. They, they don't offer the real fulfillment that I'm looking for. And they remembered, you know, when I was a child, there was something that was very fulfilling. So they kind of uh, went back to their childhood uh, to try to retain some of that Christian tradition, 
but they fused it with the ethical demands of the social justice movement at the time. And, and so um, publications were started, uh, movement was started. You had like the Sojourners um, magazine, Right On was another one. Um, the Reform Journal carried a bunch of stuff uh, related to this. Uh, the big event was the 1973 Chicago Declaration, where a number of these guys come together and also mainstream evangelicals like Carl Henry was even there. And they signed this declaration, which if you read it today, it sounds exactly like what we're facing now. Like it could have been written yesterday and you would not have known. Uh, it talks about the church being complicit in, in so many horrible things. And it really comes down mostly to racism and sexism, that that's the legacy of the church in America and kind of like a uh, just a statement against that kind of thing. And um, these were people, though, who are politically motivated. They, they had just um, come from evangelicals from for McGovern in 1972. Ron Sider had organized that, and he used that same list to form the Chicago Declaration. So these are very polit political, on the Democratic Party side, um, evangelicals. Um, what happened was identity politics, this was before intersectionality, identity politics ripped them apart, and there's a number of other factors that didn't help them, but that was one of the main things. Uh, they couldn't get along. So different interest groups, like the anti-war group, couldn't get along with like the black, black power movement, that kind of thing. And they couldn't get along with the feminists, you know? And so they kind of broke apart. Uh, and then Ronald Reagan uh, got into office and, um, and then religious right, all of a sudden, this populist movement came out of nowhere. And so they stole all the headlines. And that's what people for the last like 30 years have thought of evangelicalism, that it's the religious right. It's this conservative political movement. When in actuality, the progressive evangelicals never went away. They've been there. They just weren't stealing headlines as much until now. Uh, that second generation of people like David Platt and Russell Moore, they've been trained by uh, people like Ron Sider. I mean, they call him an influence. I mean, those people like Ron Sider and Richard Mao and Jim Wallace have basically helped uh, syncretize the new left movements of today, the, the you know, totalitarian, now, now it's just anti-freedom uh, communism, basically. I mean, it's, it's just getting more, worse and worse. They've, they've helped the evangelicals navigate that and syncretize that with Christianity. And it didn't come out of nowhere. It, it's been in academia for some time. Uh, it's just that people who are living their lives, feeding their kids, going to church, wouldn't hear about it because it was in the seminaries. It was in edu educational uh, uh, institutions of higher learning. So um, so that's, that's, there's a lot more that could be said, but that's kind of the, the sketch of kind of where we've come from the 1970s to today. Well, gentlemen, I'll use this as a, as a point to point you to his book. That's precisely what this book does is to kind of tra track some of that um, new left, evangelical left influence through from the 70s through to today. And it's very enlightening. Um, it, it, it allows you to see that a lot of this may have gone dormant for a while, but it is, it is not something that popped up with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of these things. This is something that has been latent for a while, and it really shouldn't have surprised people that it has made its way into evangelicalism. So if you, if you really want to understand how that works, you have to read this book. So, all right, John. Yeah, thanks, so, BJ. Appreciate it. No problem. Well, listen, um, you've, you've terrified some guys. Oh my gosh, social justice is everywhere. What, what, what advice would you give to just the average guy? He goes to the, to the church on Sunday. He worships with his family. 
and he is he's become aware that this is everywhere what what can the average guy do to push back against this first keep going to church and worshiping with your family don't stop doing that um cultivating a good family identity a good christian identity um a uh a love for a place and people, even knowing that there's imperfections because people are imperfect and there will always be imperfections, but a stewardship of things that are just valuable to, to one's identity. This helped me a lot. I think growing up, I, I realized that more and more as time's worn on that um, I have a natural inclination to love uh, my family. And I have an, I had an identity there cultivated by my parents when I was young. Uh, that I knew who I was. Um, I was very hooked into the older folks in my family, hearing their stories, uh, respecting them. It's, it's hard to disrespect grandpa when you grew up on his knee hearing his stories, right? So these are things that can be easily cultivated and, and they're natural things. That's the thing. Um, you may have to, some, I don't know, that we didn't have cell phones, you know, like we do today when I was young. So I think there's some barriers there. There's all sorts of things competing for one's attention, but uh, somehow figure out a way to cultivate those natural, um, uh, natural sensibilities and uh, love for one's own. Um, obviously, biblical truth is very important. You need to uh, be rooted in that. Um, having an epistemology that's revelational, as you said, um, a, a, a realism that, you know, I, ideas, uh, truth doesn't just exist in your head or your mind. It's not a result of one's social location or anything like that. It's actually objective. It's out there. Um, it's, it's there to be discovered by people who can use the abilities God has given them. So God must stay in uh, that equation when you're looking at epistemology and truth, that transcendence is needed. Otherwise, um, you will be in subjectivity real quick. Um, on a political level, uh, if people have any time to spare, um, getting involved on a local level is very, very important. So your school board, your, um, your you know, local town councilman or something like that, they may seem like small things, but they actually mean a lot. Uh, all politics is local. And right now with the federal government, the national government um, taking as much control as they're taking, it's going to be local communities and states that are going to need to put the brakes on policies coming out of Washington, and they're going to need to say no and have a backbone. So real people with real backbones need to get involved in the uh, political arena to stop this. Um, and, uh, you know, just educate yourself a little bit on this, at least enough to know kind of what social justice is. Um, so when you see it, you can spot it. Uh, just, just so you're aware, if someone starts using certain language, like if, like if someone comes up to you and says, for instance, you know, uh, we need a, uh, and a minority lens to really understand A, B, or C. Um, you can, you, an antenna should go off in your mind. You should say, wait a minute, that, that's wrong. That's actually uh, against objectivity. That's a subjective understanding of truth. And then you could have intelligent questions to ask them. Like, you know, do you think... Uh, if they're a Christian, you could even say like, do you think that um, biblical interpretation or reading the Bible uh, is more, you, you can have more access into the truth of it. If you're someone who's my, a minority or something like that, just get them to think through what they're actually saying. Uh, Cause they say that they're trying to rip down hierarchies and, or get you institute justice. But what they're doing is they're creating their own new hierarchy. And in that hierarchy, you know, there's, they're privileging some people and discriminating against others. 
So most of them don't understand that. So you can actually explain it. Um, these are just common sense, basic things uh, that, that I'm talking about, really. Um, I don't know that there is a silver bullet out there, but I, I think it's like anyone who would be living in, let's say, Utah or in a Muslim country where you're surrounded by another religion. You just need to know the basics about that religion, and you need to be able to share the gospel with people who believe that religion. And it's really not much more to it. So um, we've nice. navigated it before as Christians. We can do it again. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I always try to encourage people. Um, there, you know, when we read and hear about this, it can feel very overwhelming. It can feel like this impenetrably scholarly thing that we can't get. We got to go get historians like John Harris to die, you know, dissect this all for us. Um, but that's not really true. I think if you just take some time to read, you can you can figure out general trends. But the the one thing that always keeps me hopeful is that the kinds of outcomes that many in the social justice community claim they want, their methods are not going to achieve. Their, their methods are going to cause more chaos than That's anything. Right. But biblical Christianity practiced at a local church within families that are seeking to disciple their children and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus do produce those good outcomes. You, you will not find a greater connection between two different ethnicities than when they are both baptized into the same Lord or right, gender relations or whatever, whatever relations together. That's right. When you, when you start building that kind of community, you, you see a, a connection that happens in a way that no social justice ideology can ever produce. And that's ultimately, John, where I, I think I like to land is the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church, but we also have to be willing to recognize that we're, we're in the fight. And so, John, I, I appreciate that advice. Men, I commend it to you. I appreciate your book. Uh, men, I commend it to you as well. As I always remind folks, if you are in the Kirkmont community, shoot me an email. We will get you a free copy of his book. Those of you outside of the Kirkmont community, uh, go order it. We will have a link provided for you in the show notes. John, I appreciate all your work, man. It's, uh, it's, really, it's really great to have somebody do the kind of work that you do so that we can lean on your research. Uh, keep up the good work, man. Hey, BJ. I appreciate it. God bless you. All right. Thanks for coming on, man. My pleasure. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.